Good evening and welcome to Nightline Africa. We are coming to you live from the English service of the Voice of America. Thanks for joining us. I'm Douglas Impuga. The majority of our team is already displaced. They're describing uh, increasingly difficult conditions in the center and south of Gaza, um, finding it more and more difficult to find basic food items, water, and other necessities. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken urges Israel to minimize harm to civilians and maximize humanitarian aid that is reaching them. Saudi wants to definitely gain more influence and Saudi Arabia wants to position itself as an alternative because one of the aspirations of any nation state is to extend its influence beyond its borders. Several African leaders are in Saudi Arabia for the inaugural Saudi Africa Summit. They were targeting Ahmed Tantawi from the very beginning. They make his life difficult. Together with his campaign managers, also supporters, they give him tough time because they know that he is serious and he was really challenging President Sisi. And Egyptians prepare for next month's elections. Those are more coming up on Nightline Africa. Egypt's President Abdullah Fattah al-Sisi called on Saturday for an immediate sustainable ceasefire in Gaza uh, without restrictions or conditions. He made the call during a speech at an extraordinary joint Islamic-Arab summit in Riyadh. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Friday that far too many Palestinians have died and suffered as Israel continues to wage war against Hamas militants in the Gaza Strip. He urged Israel to minimize harm to civilians and maximize humanitarian aid that is reaching them. Speaking to reporters in New Delhi, Blinken said recent efforts to improve dire conditions in Gaza as Israel forces push deeper into the enclave, including four-hour pauses in military operations, is not enough. Shaina Law, communications advisor for the Palestinian Office of the Norwegian Refugee Council tells Car- uh, VOS Caravan Dam that most NRC staffers in Gaza had already moved south but described conditions in the north and south as horrific. The majority of our team is already displaced. They're describing uh, increasingly difficult conditions in the center and south of Gaza. Um, finding it more and more difficult to find basic food items, water, um, other necessities. They have, they talk about waiting in line five or six hours a day for a half portion of bread to feed their families. In terms of the conditions in the north, we do have a few colleagues who have stayed in the north. And for them, it's very, very difficult for them to leave. Some of our staff have disabilities or their family members have disabilities, and to make that multi-kilometer walk from northern Gaza or Gaza City down to to Wadi Gaza, it's incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for them given the circumstances. I haven't heard if any have been able to try and make it since the announcement of these so-called corridors, but it's important to note that nowhere in Gaza is safe. We're still hearing about bombardments in the south, and lack of supplies in the south. So even those that are able to make this perilous journey have no guarantees of their safety. And in fact, a number of our staff members 
have been injured or, or had family members killed in air, in airstrikes in southern Gaza, including one one colleague who lost her only child, a seven year old boy, and an airstrike in Rafah where she had sought shelter. I'm so sorry about these workers. Are they able to even attend to others and help others when the situation is so desperate for themselves? You know, we've been very limited in our ability to have our staff operate on the ground in Gaza because so much of their days are focused on just staying staying safe, keeping their families safe, and finding basic necessities, which is increasingly difficult. We have been able to do some response. Some of that has been able to be done through our offices in Jerusalem, providing cash assistance to some of Gaza's most vulnerable families. Um, and we're able to do that remotely, mobilizing our teams in the West Bank to help with that cash distribution, notifying recipients that there's cash available for them. But the window of opportunity for that to be effective is rapidly shrinking as the markets lose their stocks and, and cannot replenish them. We also have been working in a school in southern Gaza, helping with site management. It's a school where that's hosting internally displaced people. That's not a UN school. And we have been able to make, to distribute some food supplies and non-food items to internally displaced people at this camp and, and working directly with the dis distributor. Tell me about sanitation. I've heard that it's just really challenging, to say the least. I've heard that people that have gone to southern Gaza, as they were told to do, are sharing a, a, a toilet for 600 people. I mean, the UN has reported that the number of communicable diseases or waterborne illnesses is rapidly rising. I think they mentioned that there were 30, I think 33,000 cases of diarrhea when, which was in, uh, exponentially higher than, than the normal amount of cases reported due to kids, prim primarily children, drinking unclean water. One of my own colleagues, his son, had what he described as intestinal flu because his son had had unclean water. We are hearing that it's increasingly difficult to find any water, whether it's to bathe or clean enough to drink. So there's a whole host of issues. This is why on top of the need for just more aid and assistance to be coming in through Rafa, there needs to be fuel included in that because fuel is necessary for pumping water, for desalination plants to operate, for sewage treatment, and that would hopefully prevent even more of these cases of diseases. That's Shaina Law, Communications Advisor for the Palestine Office of the Norwegian Refugee Council. She was speaking with my colleague, Carl Van Dam from Jerusalem. Several African leaders are in Saudi Arabia for the inaugural Saudi-Africa Summit. The summit aims to enhance political coordination, address regional security threats, promote economic transformation through research and the local development of new energy solutions, and boost investment cooperation, according to the Saudi Press Agency. Dr. Edgar Githue is an international relations, security, and diplomatic expert at the U.S. International University in Nairobi. He tells me that such summits usually end up benefiting the host nation more than the African countries. The Saudi-Africa summit is basically Saudi Arabia trying to position itself as a regional. It is a regional power. It is a major power in the Middle East. And uh, Saudi wants to definitely gain more influence. And Saudi Arabia wants to position itself as an alternative because one of the aspirations of any nation state is to extend its influence beyond 
its borders. So we have the Russia-Africa Summit, we have India-Africa Summit, the China-Africa Summit, the US-Africa Summit. These are just powers trying to position themselves and take advantage of the African market because the African market represents over 1.2 to 1.3 billion people. So it's a huge market for their goods, number one. And two, I remember Saudi Arabia is uh, one of the world's largest producers of oil. So just assuring Africa of energy security and all those other things. Also just uh, socioculturally trying to also just support programs, support um, from a religious perspective, support the Islamic leaning nations in Africa and all that. So it is just Saudi Arabia trying to position itself and trying to gain influence. What is in it for Africa? Energy security, definitely. It's a source for financing. It's a source for also aid. It can also get aid without too many strings attached from Saudi Arabia. Those are the kind of things. Saudi Arabia is a market for African goods as well. A lot of African beef is sold in Saudi Arabia. Uh, We're talking about coffee, tea. Those are things that Africa can provide for them. So Africa is uh, for raw materials in terms of trade. And raw materials, that is what Africa looks to sell to Saudi Arabia, in my view. Africa, as you say, has, ha- has ha- gone to such a meetings like the China-Africa Summit, the Russia-Africa Summit, U.S.-Africa Summit, and now the Saudi. Uh, do the Africans, in your opinion, um, get what they should get for African people? No, but that's a nice question, but it's also very complicated because not all African countries have bilateral relations or go to do business with these big powers actually get what they need for their people. Sometimes, because of the leverage and the power and economic power these big countries have, they kind of get the better, the the, the sweet end of the deal. Because you'll find, if you really want to find an African country benefiting, it should not be the Saudi-African summit. It should be the Saudi-Kenya bilateral summit. It should be the Saudi-Ethiopia. But the moment it becomes Saudi-Africa, it means we have competing interests. We are are going to be, 30, 40 African presidents are going to show up there the Saudi Arabian crown prince will not have enough time for all of them. Not all African needs are going to be articulated there. So it is Saudi Arabia that ends up benefiting more than the individual African countries. Not all African countries will walk away with what they deserve or what they need. Well, why do you think Africans want to negotiate as a team where they have, as you say, individual interests for each nation? Nigeria is an, a big oil producer, for instance. Well, others like uh, Kenya, which has gone there, doesn't have any oil. Their interests differ as a mm. continent. You're right. When you look, this is, a, this is a, the resurgence, the renaissance of Pan-Africanism, where Africa is trying to speak with one voice. But unfortunately, uh, they rarely end up speaking in one voice because at the end of the day, all countries act in their own best interest. All nation states are going to pursue their own interests individually and not collectively. So you might find the most that Saudi Arabia will do if it decides we need more coffee and tea from Africa, it will deal with Ethiopia and Kenya on the side. Even though it is in the African summit, it will call Ethiopia and Kenya on the side and probably talk about that. And then it will look at who else can offer what for us. You know, so we cannot really say that it is Africa benefiting as a whole. What Saudi Arabia is doing in this, uh, in this uh, Saudi Africa summit and what the Russia African summit, Chinese African summit are trying to do, All these countries are interested in the 55 votes that Africa has at the United Nations. So they want to secure support for whatever agenda they have at the international level by asking Africa to vote for it. So if you can be able to convince or get support from 40 or even 50 out of 55 African votes, then it means that your agenda will be supported at the United Nations.
that is primarily what all these big powers are looking for, that African vote at the United Nations uh, Assembly. Other than that, there are also those bilateral uh, trade agreements that eventually end up benefiting the bigger country than they do benefit the small African country. That's Edgar Githway. is an international relations security and a diplomatic expert at the U.S. International University in Nairobi. He spoke with me from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Former Egyptian parliament member Ahmed Tantawi, who is challenging President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in the oncoming elections, will face criminal charges for circulating election-related papers without official authorization. Tantawi has said his supporters faced difficulties when they went to notarization offices around the country to submit election endorsements for Tantawi in his next month's election. Al-Sisi is widely seen as winning the re-election. Anwar Sadat, head of the Egypt Reform and Development Party, expressed his deep concern over these charges against Antawi and its impact on the course of political reform in Egypt. VOA senior analyst Mohamed Al-Shanawi spoke to Sadat. They were targeting Ahmed Tantawi from the very beginning. They make his life difficult. Together with his campaign managers, also supporters, they give him tough time because they know that he is serious and he was really challenging presidencies. So they didn't really give him the access for making any kind of official proxies through our notary uh, offices and in spite of a lot of complaints have been uh, presented to the prosecutor general, to the election commission and many other authorities, actually no one did anything. And this is doesn't make anyone happy because if they are calling for free and fair election, then everyone should practice his political rights and have access to a fair competition. But he's accused of circulating unofficial papers for elections. This is honestly nonsense. What he was doing when they make it very difficult for anyone to make official authorizations, they were trying to have a kind of signature from his supporters whereby his plan was to present it to the election commission. In your statement you said that what's happening greatly affects the credibility of the needed political breakthrough, opening the public sphere and respecting the rights and freedoms guaranteed by the Egyptian constitution and law. And you said the continuation of this climate and the tightening of pressure on people under harsh social conditions is a great danger to the Egyptian state. What does that mean? Egypt nowadays and majority of Egyptians under severe economic and financial problems. So we thought that the government, the president, will be wise enough to try to open up the political sphere and give a message of confidence that they are willing to let people express their views, opinion, and to keep their dignity and their right. People are suffering enough from the living standards. So we thought when they call for this national strategy for human rights, when they call for this national dialogue, that they will open up the political and the civic sphere and people will enjoy what they call the new republic. But again, it looks like that this is all slogans 
Africa Center for Strategic Studies in Washington published a research paper on the December elections in which said Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi is expected to retain the presidency for a third term as he faces only token opposition after his most prominent challenger Ahmad Tantawi with 2 million followers on Facebook was repeatedly blocked from registering his candidacy with the National Elections Authority. What's your take on that report? Even Ahmad Tantawi if you would have the chance to run and to compete or to challenge CC, it doesn't mean that he have a chance. No, there was no chance. But the advantage of Ahmad Antawi, he would have created a case, a real serious debate. To me, the election is over. What is important now, the day next, what are we going to see? Now, no one speaks about anything, neither the presidential election nor how life prices, inflation is making life difficult. Everyone is now a bit concerned about our national security, our borders, which they believe that Sisi will be the best to handle or to deal with. The, um, that was uh, the Egyptian National Election Authority has denied it has mistreated anyone at authorization offices that issue endorsement forms for prospective election candidates. The authority issued a statement calling such allegations a baseless. The NEA said all the decisions in the election process will conform with the constitution and the law and with international standards and guarantee equal opportunity to all candidates. Presidential candidates must secure endorsements from 25,000 eligible voters across at least 15 governorates or from 20 members of parliament. The NEA also rejected an attempt to raise doubts about its independence. Meanwhile, in the Diara Congo, a soldier in eastern Diara Congo has been lynched on suspicion that he was an M23 rebel, several sources said, in the latest violence to hit the conflict-torn region. The French news agency AFP reports on Saturday the Congolese army said Colonel Patrick Rutasura Gasore had died on Thursday evening in the city of Goma without giving further details. The army added that it had launched an investigation into the circumstances surrounding his death and arrested two suspects. However, several sources said residents of the colonel's neighborhood in Goma had lynched him after mistaking him for an M23 fighter. The two-slayed M23, which is allegedly backed by Rwanda, has captured swaths of territory in eastern Diara Congo since launching an offensive in late 2021. A period of several months of calm was broken last month when fighting erupted against, again between the M23 on one side and Congolese soldiers and pro-state militia on the other. Gasori was a member of the Mnyamblenge, a Congolese Tusi community from South Kivu province, Several Western countries, including the U.S. and France, have concluded that Rwanda backs the M23. Chigali denies the claim. At that time, Europe knew very, very little. Uh, German President uh, Frank Walter Steinmann recently asked for forgiveness for his country's colonial abuses in Tanzania. Historians estimate that over 300,000 members of the indigenous Tanzanian population were killed when they resisted brutal repression by the Germans. During one of the most famous surprisings, referred to as Majimaji Rebellion between 1905 and 1907, thousands of Tanzanians were killed and others died from hunger after German troops targeted their food sources. 
renowned East African writer and lawyer, General Ulimwengu, says that even though to many Tanzanians the memories of the atrocities have long faded, some continue to advocate for compensation and the repatriation of human remains in Germany museums. From Dar es Salaam, Ulimwengu tells VOS Jackson Mvungani that Tanzanians rebelled against the Germans' exploitative practices that involved forced labor and beatings. At that time, Europe knew very, very little of Africa apart from the coastal uh, trading posts that they, they, they visited uh, at the time. So they started uh, looking for uh, areas to go into from the coast moving inland. They started uh, exploring the countries that they were they had agreed upon as their property back mm. in Berlin, 1984-85. And that is uh, how the Germans found themselves uh, in East Africa, mm. uh, in the sense of uh, the late, later what they, it was called um, Dutch Post Africa uh, or German uh, East Africa, and um, as well as uh, Southwest Africa, which is present-day uh, Namibia and so on and so forth. You said they were in Namibia, in some parts of uh, West Africa. What was their motivation to expand to East Africa, and, and how, how did it compare to other European colonial powers in the region? Uh, well, the colonial enterprise was basically for economic uh, purposes. They saw um, these chunks of territory as um, spaces where they could make um, a lot of uh, economic uh, activities take place and they, they they went about forcing people to to work and work very hard under the the most brutal conditions the Germans introduced uh, what uh, was known as the shikote we became very popular later on with the Portuguese the hippo hippo skin whip which mm. they used to cane to cane the natives who did not want to to work, work for them. Um, and, and what were some of the notable uprisings or rebellions or resistant movements against German colonial rule in East Africa? And how were they addressed by the Germans? In East Africa, you had a rebellion in the southwest, uh, southeast uh, Tanganyika, rather, uh, in the area around uh, Lindi, uh, Kiloa, uh, and the area surrounding uh, that place. Then there was a rebellion in the southern highlands of uh, latter-day uh, Tanganyika, which is, was around the the Hehe land, uh, the country around uh, Iringa, Mbeya, uh, Morogoro, and and then the south, the southwest uh, Tanganyika. What role did the missionaries play in the German colonial efforts, and how did their activities affect local communities? The Germans, uh, just like any other colonial enterprise, employed uh, the, the, their own clergy, people from uh, Germany who uh, would come to pacify, to pacify the, the, the natives. Mm. And they, um, they brought in uh, missionaries, they brought in uh, teachers, they brought in uh, administrators. Um, and their role was basically to soften the native, to make him accept foreign rule, because they knew, they knew uh, intrinsically that there was not a possibility that people would accept foreign rule easily. 
So they brought in uh, the, uh, the the evangelical German uh, uh, class to soften to preach the Bible mm-hmm. and uh, make uh, the people more uh, amenable, more uh, pliable to 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 the idea of uh, uh, control by uh, by an alien uh, force. That's right and lawyer generally Ulimwengo speaking with my colleague Jackson Mvungani from Dar es Salaam. Northern Africa comes to you on Saturdays and Sundays at 16 and 18 hours UTC from the English service of the Voice of America. And in the second half of the program, we shall have music. Uh, but first, CFK Africa, a locally led youth leadership and public health nonprofit focused on fighting extreme poverty in Africa and informal settlements, announced last week seven new members of its Global Advisory Council. The new group of esteemed members include entrepreneurs, academics, a former member of the U.S. Congress, a co-founder of the Malala Fund, and others who will provide expertise as the organization plans new programs to expand access to health care, improve educational outcomes, and provide mentorship to girls and young women. Geoffrey Okoro is CFK Africa's new executive director. I reached him in Nairobi to find out more about the Kenyan-based organization. CFK Africa uh, fights extreme poverty across 24 informal settlements in Kenya through our public health, uh, youth development, and our education initiatives. We fight inequalities uh, right around gender, health. We reduce issues and disparities affecting community members in Kibera and among other informal settlements in Kenya. We are headquartered in Kibera, uh, where we were founded. That is over 22 years ago, and we have made it our focus to fight extreme poverty in informal settlements, uh, which are unfortunately mushrooming a lot more in Kenya and across Africa, as I've been witness. We also partner rather with a lot of community uh, community members and organizations within Kibera to help advance the cause. You are headquartered in Kenya, but you also have uh, what you call the Global Advisory Council. What's the role of that uh, Global Advisory Council? We have an advisory council that was started by Madeleine Albright, and this group of esteemed uh, professionals provide key insight to guide the strategy of our organization. And most of the members who are pioneers and thought leaders in their field, they share the expertise with CFK Africa to help us work better, us get uh, you know, new insight and directions into the work that we do. And we hold monthly calls with them um, just to share, but also to learn. You've been in the organization for a long time. What are the main challenges you face as an organization? Some of the challenges that I would say are not just us, but are common across is that uh, one uh, is that there's rapid urbanization across Africa. And uh, Kenya specifically is leading in social infrastructure being overwhelmed. And these are basically housing, schools, health facilities. And of course, there are mushrooming of informal settlements across the urban centers. And these are leading to dire situations. 
The other bit is that there are systematic challenges around uh, poverty that require comprehensive support to address. For instance, here in Kenya, there was a rolling out of a new education curriculum, which is a competency-based curriculum, CBC, that is quite resource-intensive. But for low-resource communities such as Kibera, Madari, and other informal settlements, this is is not achievable. And this has led to a very unequal situation for these kids and for this youth accessing these schools. So for us as an organization, we are noting an increased demand for support and for this we are not also able to meet. And lastly, uh, their current economic hardship that have wiped out a lot of uh, gains made earlier on post-COVID. And we are seeing a lot of families that are slipping into uh, what we deem as extreme level of poverty. And this, you could just see how economic, health, and even education outcomes that we were looking at as being gained are slowly sliding. So there is more demand for support given the current economic situation in Kenya, and I would assume also globally. Talking of resources, do you have insufficient resources to do your work? Or if not, how do you intend to organize those resources? Our number one resource is the community, um, is the people's voice that we amplify. They identify the challenges, they prioritize, they volunteer, and we come in to help support as catalysts, as facilitators. So as CFK, one, we appreciate the generous financial contribution from our donors, partners, and collaborators. And through these resources, we've been able to strengthen and, you know, have impactful long-term programming in Kibera. CFK as an organization, uh, we have a revenue of about $3 million US million, which is about 93% of our total expenditure which go to direct programming. We also are committed to responsible resource management, ensuring that every you know, dollar we spend is maximized on impacts and supporting our mission. That's Jeffrey Okorum, CFK Africa's new executive director. He spoke with me from Nairobi. Afrobeats music has grown in popularity around the world with artists like Wizkid, Burna Boy, and many others gaining international recognition and their music charting on global music platforms. However, many agree that the genre still has potential to grow and expand its reach and influence. VOS Jackson Mvungani spoke to the one person who would know what needs to be done to realize this potential. Columbia Records Vice President Buchama with deep knowledge on the trends shaping the global music industry, Boo, who is signing new African artists to his record label, talks about the future of Afrobeats. Personally, my taste, as far as Boo Vision and my company, is artists that have, you know, legacy potential and to have the opportunity to be able to have success um, and that can also change lives and, 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 and you know, and, and, and impact people, impact people yeah. in a different kind of way. Yeah. That's really how I, how I see it. You I know? love it. Yeah. I love it. Uh, let's talk about Afrobeat. Afrobeat yeah. has been on a trajectory right. in the last five, six, seven, That's ten right. years. That's right. Um, things that, you know, we, that unimaginable. That's you right. Bonner selling our stadiums. That's right. Ashake, yeah. Davido, Wizkid. Uh, what's the future for uh, Afrobeats? Where does the game go from now? As a visionary yourself mm-hmm. who has been around... Uh, where do you see this going? How do we? How does the culture elevate from right. where it is right now? Well, for one, shout out to all those brothers you mentioned. Um, they all are pushing the, you know, the culture forward. 
and, 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 and kudos to them and shout out to them. And I love all, I love what all those brothers are doing. Um, and I think that it's only going to get bigger like anything else. To me, that's just, it's just a start. And I think now for me, I'm like, okay, well, where is the artist that's going to be, that's going to, like, right, even right now, when you look at like the charts, right, you look at like, you know, the, the top 100, you know, worldwide, right? Rimmer, Rimmer was close, and I was, I was really hoping that he would have had, like, a number one record. But I think he, like, peaked at four. I want to see more of what's on those charts. Like, yes, the, the Nigerian chart is, is great, and we have, and we're able to compete with each other. Mm. But now it's time for us to compete with the world. You know what I mean? Mm. Consistently. You know, like Latin music is doing now. You know what I mean? Like, like Bad Bunny is competing with Drake. Yeah. He, he's not competing with Dave. He's not competing right. with other... Latin artists, you know what I mean? So now it's like, how do we get to that? Okay, yes, we, we're, we're, we're in now. And how do we compete with, like, you know, some of the biggest artists in the world? Mm -hmm. And so that's really what I'm, like, hoping for and pushing for. And that's why I signed King Madi, because I feel that she has the opportunity to, of course, be huge in Africa, but also be relatable in America and be able to compete mm -hmm. with some of the best in the world. You know what I mean? What will it take? Does it take a, a buy-in from the diaspora community, African diaspora? Mm. Does it take a buy-in from, you know, the world? Because if you're going to sell music, you're hoping that everybody will consume your, your, your songs. Right. Um, but also, Africa's an emerging market. Is still, there's so much potential growing. There Absolutely. The economy, the money. Absolutely. Um, what is the thing that is going to elevate? I mean, I think, for one, it's going to take people like me like not saying like in the very but like because I have the knowledge and the understanding of how to do it I think what's happening with like you know a lot of artists I'm noticing like even like I've been I'm you know I love going to concerts right and then sometimes I say man why was this artist performing here last night like this venue is not really he should have he should have went yeah. here or yeah. he should have went there yeah. so my brothers are still learning how to do a lot of these things and how to properly set themselves up in relationships and write the right deals and to, you know, touring partners, still things, they're still learning as they go, right? So I think it takes someone like myself and others who's done it before to come and say, listen, this is how you properly do it. And also sonically plays a part, mm -hmm. right? Because as big as Afrobeats is and it's going crazy, obviously like, you know, some people still don't may not understand what Ashake is saying, and which is cool. I'm not saying he has to bend or fold for them, mm. but obviously it's making music to where they can identify. That's why Rimmer, because calm down if you listen to it, mm. Akon could have did that record. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or whoever, or Chris Brown, and because if it, it lands sonically to the ears of everyone, yeah. so it's all those factors that I feel we're going to need to kind of just keep pushing it to that level. You know. Columbia Records Vice President Busham speaking with my colleague Jackson Mvungani. And now it's time for a Saturday music spot. Yes, time to relax and, and enjoy great African music. I 
That's our Saturday music spot. I hope you're enjoying the music. Nathland Africa comes to you on Saturdays and Sundays at 16 and 18 hours UTC from the English service of the Voice of America. From the rest of the Nathland Africa team, our producer Jackson Mvungani and our engineer tonight, Jumba Hamza. I thank you for joining us tonight and join us again tomorrow Sunday. I'm Douglas Mpuga. Anna, 
This one is actually one of the favorite songs of British and boxing heavyweight champion Anthony Joshua, who, as we all know, is actually of Nigerian descent. Fan. And also, one of the other things that makes me like Anthony Joshua is that he doesn't shy off from listening to songs done by Nigerian artists. When Anthony Joshua is not sparring in the ring or, you know, training, one of his favorite songs that he loves listening to is called Odio Elegba by Whiskey. And so this one is going to be my dedication to all boxing fans and to all boxers out there. Plus you, Anthony Joshua, we are dedicating to you this particular song right here on Music Time in Africa. They know my story, they know my story. From old dogs to 